Hey everyone, this is Jamie Austin, pastor of Woodlake Church. Thank you so much for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Woodlake, head on over to woodlake.church and enjoy this message. If you're new with us today, this is going to be a lot of fun. We are in the series called Mutiny on the Seven Seas. And before I jump in, I want to introduce you to my family. Uh, this is my wife, Whitney, and our sons, Teddy and Riley. And hey, if you're new to the Woodlake family, I am telling you your family to us this morning. We are so glad that you're here. Now, if you are new, this series is about the book of Revelation. Now, before you get freaked out by the idea that we're just going to be talking about all of the apocalypse and all of that, let me show you what we've been talking about all month. In the book of Revelation chapter one, it says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, so this word is from Jesus himself, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw that that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Today, as we go into the book of Revelation, I need you to understand that what we are reading is the word of God given to a guy named John. Now, a little bit later in that chapter, it'll say this. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, write, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatera, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, if you're new today, we have been going through our pirate's map of the seven churches. Each week we've talked about one of these cities. And real quick, I'm going to remind you what we've been talking about. Uh, week one, we were in Ephesus where we talked about the loveless church. Week two, we were in Smyrna. We talked about the persecuted church. Week three, we were in Pergamum where we talked about the compromising church. Week four, Theatera, the corrupt church. Week five, last week, we had Pastor Oscar here who did an amazing job. And he talked about the dead church. And today we're talking about Philadelphia, which is known as the Faithful Church. Uh, real quick, I want to show you this map of the original seven cities again. So this is the seven churches that we see in Revelation. If you look for Philadelphia, you're going to see it more inland than some of the others. It's actually right up here in the middle. And Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. There was an imperial post set up there, and it was a place where people would come and go pretty quickly. There was a lot of culture in Philadelphia. Another thing that was known about them was they were known as Little Athens because there were so many temples set up in their city. Uh, one commentary wrote that this city was set up in a unique place to make the greatest impact possible in their area. So today we're going to meet a small church, but a steady one that truly could impact the world. Uh, one unique thing about this letter that we're going to read today is that it's completely positive. And so if you've been here for the last six, seven weeks and you felt like, okay, there's a lot to take in from this. A lot of these letters are pretty direct and telling us to correct things. Well, today's is completely encouraging. 
Uh, another thing I love about the church in Philadelphia is for all of us, this might be a word that we've actually heard before. Uh, and so you might not know this about me. I'm actually from Pennsylvania, and I want to show you another map that's a little more important to me personally, and that is Pennsylvania. Okay, so I need to explain something real quick. Uh, oftentimes I meet people and they talk about Philadelphia and they assume that I know everything about Philadelphia. Okay, so Philadelphia is over on the east side of the state. I am from Pittsburgh. That's that arrow over on the west side. So you could say west of Philadelphia is where I was born and raised. On the playground is where I spent most of my days. Chill. I'm going to stop right there. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be honest, that's the first part of this sermon I wrote weeks ago, and I was pumped for that moment, so thank you for laughing. Um, but there's another reason that I did that. Uh, and that is because when you think of Philadelphia, we often think of the city of brotherly love. You might picture this sculpture that's in the middle of the city. Philadelphia is known with this idea of love. And growing up, when I finally found it in the Bible, I would have assumed that the biblical city was much different and that the names happened to be the same. And then I looked in the book of Revelation in the original language. Check out the definition I found from Philadelphia. Love for fellow believers, formally brotherly love, brotherly kindness. So we didn't make that up to describe an American city. That's actually a word that came out of the mouth of God himself. And it's this idea of love for one another. Today, the letter I'm going to read you can be read like a love letter from God himself to a small, strong, and steady church that had a special place in God's heart. If you've got your Bible on you, we're going to hang out in Revelation 3 today. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a physical Bible, go to the Bible app and follow along. Maybe highlight or copy these verses. Because even though it's a really short passage, when we study it today, I promise you, God has a word for us today through a word that was written many years ago. So Revelation chapter 3 says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who's holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Family, as we read this passage today, I want you to picture a small group of people doing their absolute best to do the right thing. This church was not some massive synagogue. It was not a mega church for the day. This was just a small church staying steady, doing what God had called them to do. Uh, if you're taking notes today, here's kind of my definition for this church. The church in Philadelphia was small, strong, and steady. They were small, strong, and steady. They were in a place where they could make a unique impact on the world, sure, but they also had some unique challenges. They faced persecution and oppression, and if you've been with us all series long, you've heard this time and time again. Well, this church was especially significant, but not in the way that we see significance. You see, throughout the Bible, there are groups of people that are small groups that make a big impact. In the Old Testament, there's this word remnant, which basically means a small group of God's chosen people that even when the whole world falls apart around them, even when others compromise and leave the faith, even when others get confused by a culture headed the wrong direction, there was a group of people that stayed strong doing the right thing. 
In the Gospels, we see Jesus literally change the world through a small group of guys that's less than 12 that literally would fit in just one row here in our church, and yet they made a global impact. Today, I want to flip the script a little bit on significance. I want you to see what real significance looks like. In 2014, my wife and I were, were in an appointment with a counselor, and we were talking about all kinds of stuff, and, and the counselor looked across at me, and he asked me a question that seemed completely left field. He said, what do you think it means to be a change agent? I'd never been asked that before. I'd never even really said those words, and so I sat there and thought about it for a moment, and then I answered him as best I could. I said, well, to be a change agent, you need to get a consensus of people on your side. You, you need to get people that are ready to change. To be a change agent, you need an exact plan of what you're going to do to make the changes happen. To be a change agent, if you're in a position of leadership underneath someone else's leadership, you need to get your leader on board with what you're doing. And our counselor looked at me, giving me that face that said, I clearly had the wrong answer. And for the next few moments, he told me that what you just said is completely impossible. If you think changing the world starts with all of that, you're never going to make a single change in anyone's life. He said, instead, to be a change agent, just live the best life you can and make the changes you can make now. Today, we're going to find a small church that would not be known for their influence. In today's culture, you wouldn't even be able to find them on social media, and yet, they made a significant enough impact that God gives them the most positive letter that is written in this chapter in Revelation. Today, as we study this church, I want you to think about what it looks like for us to make an impact. Now today, if you've been here for the entire series, we've given you a lot of direction. We've given you a lot of things to work on. We've challenged you week after week on holding to the truth. And if you've started making changes in your life, it's easy to feel like you're standing alone, you're isolated in doing the right thing. Well, I have two encouragements for you today. First off, Anything that makes you feel isolated is 100% a lie of the enemy. I don't like to throw around the devil and give him too much credit, but here's the thing he is great at. He is a liar, and his greatest lie in the life of a believer is that you're doing the right thing, sure, but you're doing it alone. You're not doing it alone, family. I mean, right now, there's literally hundreds of people in here that've got your back, so you are not alone. But secondly, as we read the letter to Philadelphia, we read the encouraging words of a loving father. And so would you read it with me today? And as we look at these words, and as you read them, I want you to see a God that loves you so much that will keep you staying like Philadelphia, small, strong, and steady. In verse eight of chapter three, he says, I know all the things you do, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Now today, we've got to do a little bit of Bible study. Uh, if you're new to church, this can already be confusing. So God is telling this group of people, I opened a door. And so if you're brand new to all this, it could be easy to ask, well, what door? What is the significance of this door? And to be completely honest, I've lived with the Bible in my life a long time, and it took some study this week for us to figure out what door are they even talking about. And so let's quickly study this. In verse 7, here's what he says. So this is one verse before. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who's holy and true. Okay, so this is the message from God. So it basically says, church in Philadelphia, you have a message from God. 
God, the one who has the key of David. If you're underlining things, highlighting things, that's important. The key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Okay, here's where we have to do a little bit of Bible study. So as we were studying this this week, Jordan, one of our interns, helped us a lot, and he helped us find this key of David. To understand the key of David, we have to go back to the book of Isaiah. If you're new to the Bible, Isaiah is in the Old Testament. He's one of the prophets that came before Jesus was born. Revelation, last book of the whole thing. In this chapter in Isaiah, we see a change in leadership. At this time, there was a king named Hezekiah, and he had a guy that served him named Shebna. So Shebna would have been his number two. It's the guy that handled things. He was the one that took care of the house. He's the one that got things done. Shebna was the number two for Hezekiah. But here's the problem. Shebna was a bad guy. So if we're looking at the Bible, just basic is what it is. Shebna is the bad guy in the story. Uh, and in the story, God speaks to him. And he says, hey, you aren't doing the right thing. I am going to remove you from leadership and put this other guy, Eliakim, in your face. Okay, in your place. So here's what you need to understand. Sorry. Shebna, bad guy. God's going to take out the bad guy and put in the good guy, Eliakim. So let's just read what God says to Shebna about Eliakim. He says this, I will dress him in your royal robes and will give him your title and your authority. That phrase is important. I will give him your title, your authority, and he will be father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. I will give him the key to the house of David. Okay, earlier I said the key of David. Here's that key. The key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. Okay, God is telling bad guy, I am handing good guy the key. Now, this is a literal key. He is telling him, you've got the key to the entire palace, and I'm about to give that away to someone else. Okay, let's make this very real for us for a second. How many of you remember the first house key you ever got when you were young? I remember I was with my dad. We were in the Walmart Auto Center. I don't know why I remember it so clearly, but core memory, I got the key to the house. And so we were in line at Walmart. I remember grabbing my little teal carabiner off the thing on top of the cash checkout. I got my key, and for like the next week at school, I would just have it hanging on my backpack or like lay it on, oh, I'm sorry, is that my house key? Let me move that for you. <laughs> and I got this big ego about my dollar key from Walmart. Now, the reason I was given that key is not cool. I wasn't like getting to run the house as a 10-year-old. There was just like one day that I was going to get off the bus a few minutes early, and my dad wanted me to be able to like get into the house if I beat him there. Well, you know what? I realize now the reason that I had such an ego about that is because I had a pride problem. But the other reason <laughs> is because when I was given that key, I wasn't just given access. My dad was giving me authority over our house, even for just a few moments. Today, as we study this church, I need you to see that with access comes authority. Today, as a grown-up, the keys in my life were a little different. Like last night, I came here to the church late at night by myself to work on this, and for that hour that I was in this building, I had authority over all these chairs, all this stuff, and God trusted me with this space for about an hour last night. You see, throughout your life, you're going to get access to different things. And as you get that, you are given authority over them. 
So go all the way back to Revelation now. We have a small church that feels insignificant. If you study this church, the Bible will tell us that they were literally shut out by other believers. This church was shut out by the very people that they possibly grew up with, did life with, and for them, they felt like they had significance and authority over nothing. And God is telling them, the one who holds all the keys, Jesus, is yours. So it's not just that they have the authority with the key, they have Jesus himself. And with Jesus, they ultimately would have authority over everything as long as they obeyed and followed the Lord. So now that we understand what they have access to, we need to look at what's on the other side of the door. And so today as we study this, I want us to look at what it really means to have access to this key, to this door, and what are we really getting? Like what is the real world stuff? And so if you're taking notes today, the first thing I want you to write down is this. We have access to God's acceptance. So what do we have access to? We have access to God's acceptance. Revelation chapter 3 verse 9 says, look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue. That phrase is important. If you're new, I'll explain it to you. If you've been here all month, you heard this before. Satan's synagogue. Those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet, they will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Now, real quick, I want to show you what Satan's synagogue means. Back at the church in Smyrna, Pastor Jamie spoke on them a few weeks ago. It is the only other letter that is purely encouraging in this section. It said this, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. This is God talking about Smyrna now, a different church, same problem. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. So God's using this visual of Satan's synagogue to tell them that, hey, those other people that claim to follow me, those that claim that they're better than you, that you don't belong, they actually are like Satan's synagogue. Like they are so bad, I'm gonna throw the most evil name on them and on their church because you are the ones that I really love. You see, to really understand Philadelphia's acceptance, we need to feel the weight of their rejection. You can't really know what acceptance feels like until you've been rejected at some point in your life. And so for Philadelphia, they're just trying to do the right thing. And commentaries would tell us the literal doors to the synagogue had been shut in their faces. And God says, I love you so much, I'm gonna open doors that these guys are never even gonna get into. You get to go places they will never go. Sure, you might be rejected by them, but you're accepted by me, and I promise that's what really matters. For the rest of our time together today, I want you to get to know Jesus. And I know that can sound completely obvious, but I want to show you a side of Jesus that I met about 22 years ago. In Revelations chapter 9, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, they will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Jesus tells this church, you are the ones that I love. I first met Jesus, like I said, about 22, maybe 23 years ago. At that time in my life, I was getting into middle school and I did not grow up in church. Uh, my family went maybe once or twice when I was real little, but it wasn't in any way a part of our life. Uh, my mom got saved and it was kind of this really cool story I'd love to tell you some other time. But ultimately, I ended up going to church with my mom, and right at that same time, things had started to change in school. I don't know when it happened for you, but for me, somewhere between fourth and sixth grade, the friendships changed. 
Those people that I was friends with just because we rode the same bus, lived on the same street, went to the same class, all of a sudden that stuff wasn't the stuff that made for friends anymore. All of a sudden there became an in crowd. And the problem for me was at a school with only 96 in my class, even though it was a public school, it was very small. If you weren't in the in crowd, there wasn't like another group. You just didn't have a crowd to belong in. And somewhere between fourth and sixth grade, I learned things about what it felt to be lonely, what it felt to be rejected, what it felt like to feel completely alone for the first time, even though I had amazing parents and great support at home. I learned what it felt like to be in a crowded room and yet feel completely isolated. And I learned that between fourth and sixth grade. Well, at the same time, I go to church and at church, things were different. At church, there was no in-crowd. We were all a part of the crowd. At Central Assembly of God in Houston, Pennsylvania, I learned what it meant to be a part of a group of kids that like each other just because we like Jesus and we get to be friends because we hang out at church twice a week. And even more importantly than that, I learned at an altar call on a Wednesday night when they let the kids come to the youth service that Jesus loved me for who I was. And even though I felt lonely at times, I would never feel that feeling again. And I get emotional talking about it because I met him 22 years ago and he's been with me through some stuff in the last couple of decades. If you don't know Jesus, I don't wanna introduce you to a deity today. I'm not introducing you to a way of life today. In the beginning of all of it, I just wanna introduce you to my friend that 22 years ago said what would get said in the book of Revelation, you are the one that I love. In verse 10, he says this, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Okay, this is where the book of Revelation gets pretty revelation-y. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of like sitting down and going all in studying Revelation because I grew up in a church culture that tried to scare us into heaven by all the things that would happen if we didn't make the rapture. Here's what you need to understand. While all of that is a part of the experience of many believers, if I'm honest, the more I study scripture, while we are trying to interpret it and we're putting a spin on it, trying to make it relevant today, the reality is a lot of that stuff is gonna happen. But the Bible is just as clear that a time of testing will come as it is about the fact that whatever happens, God protects us, God keeps us, and God loves us. And so while the world is falling apart, I think we all can see that. And yes, I know that things are probably gonna get worse in a lot of ways before they can get any better. Here's what I also know. Jesus has promised that he is not surprised by the news, he's not surprised by anything that can happen, and he loves us and protects us. So just as much as I want you to meet the Jesus that told me that he loved me 20 some years ago, I want you to meet the Jesus that has guarded my heart through every bump of life in those 20 some years. The next part of this, we see Jesus. And as we're studying this, there's kind of a phrase we've said through the entire series and it's this, revelation is about looking toward the savior, not looking for the signs. And so while those things are real, that's not the point. The point is Jesus. So let's read verse 10 again. It says, because you've obeyed me, I will protect you. Uh, another translation, the New International Version says it this way, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. That phrase in the original language says protect you in some translations, keep you in others, and here's what it means. It's the word tereo, which is to keep, guard, watch, 
protect. Now, I want to show you where you read that verse just a few minutes ago. In verse 8, it says this, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, I need you to understand something today. When we keep God's word, God keeps us. When we stand for the truth, God stands with us. When we guard his word in our heart, God guards us. And so the next thing we have access to is this. We have access to God's acceptance. And number two, we have access to God's protection. In one of his final recorded prayers before the cross, Jesus prays for his disciples. And I want you to see what he says in John chapter 17. I have given them your word. So again, there's this idea of we have the word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Family, let me encourage you today. I just feel like throughout this entire series, there's been this theme of standing for truth. And I just want to remind you of something I said at the beginning of the message. When we stand on the truth and stand on God's word, we do not stand alone. But even more importantly than that, we don't even have to hold ourselves up. God himself will guard us and protect us. As I was studying this this week, I found an interesting commentary on this passage. It said that in his final moments, Jesus could have prayed anything for his disciples. He could have prayed for them to have a long life. He could have prayed for them to be protected completely. He could have prayed that they would never face persecution. He could have prayed for absolute safety away from everything. And he doesn't pray that. He prays God keep them from the evil one, meaning they're going to go into battle. They're going to fight against things. They're going to stand and they're going to be the outcast in plenty of situations, going into families and towns that have never heard the name of Jesus. And while those moments may be difficult, God's biggest prayer over them is keep them from the evil one, meaning allow their heart to be set on heaven. Allow them to remember exactly what they have been called to do. And then right after he prays this, Jesus would go into the long night of prayer. We see the garden. We see Jesus go to the cross. And that prayer hit so much differently for them when they knew that God left them protection even when their Savior had gone to heaven. In Revelation chapter 3, there's another promise. He promises us protection. He promises acceptance. And here's the last one he says. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. I told you a little bit ago that when I was a student, when I was a young adult, when I was in high school, and I was even in middle school and learning all this, Revelation was a little too revelation-y for me. Uh, and one of the things that I was not excited about was Jesus coming back. I remember the old timers in our church coming up to us and say, brother, the Lord's coming. And what that meant to me was like, oh man, I might like never get married before Jesus comes back. That's a bummer. And I remember being a young person, and us Christian kids at my church and school, we talked about that stuff, about never going to college, never getting married, never getting to do the things on this side of heaven that we are called to do. And the older I get and the more I study scripture, I have more ties to earth now than I ever did. I just showed you a few of them when I showed you the picture of my family. And yet... I'm more excited for Jesus to come back than I've ever been one day in my life. And the reason is because our brains can't begin to comprehend how great it is to physically be with Jesus. 
We can't comprehend how good it is to be removed from all this. And so when he promises us access, when he promises us acceptance and protection, he's promising us a level of perfection that we cannot even imagine. As I was studying this, I just kind of had a word picture in mind, and that is when we look to the return of Jesus, we need to look with anticipation, not anxiety. When we follow the Lord, we should be looking for him to show back up. As we study this in chapter, in chapter three, it says this, I'm coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. That picture of a crown would be like the modern picture of an Olympic medal. And what he was telling them is, look, you feel like you're in conflict all the time. I'm telling you, you have already won. So just hold on to what you've already grabbed hold of. In verse 12, he ends his promise and he says this, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. Remember earlier, I told you this church had been shut out of the synagogue. Well, now God is saying one day in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, there's a church you won't be shut out of. You are literally pillars. You are a part of what's going to hold that temple together. And he says this, and I will write on them the name of my God and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. As we end today, I have one more idea for you. We have access to his acceptance, protection, and the last thing we have access to, we have access to eternity. For a moment, I want you to put yourself in the place of this church that's been under persecution. A group of people that they don't have all the things that we have. They don't have access on their phone at any given time to hundreds of thousands of sermons and words of encouragement. They don't have access to a great new facility like we have here. They don't have access to people that they can text at any time and just say, hey, pray for me. They feel completely isolated and God tells them, I promise you, you hold on and I'm gonna give you a permanent place. There was a great quote about this passage that said this. It said, they will be citizens in God's future kingdom. Everything will be new, pure, and secure. Family, as we get ready to close today, I want you to know that you have access to God's perfect kingdom where everything will be new, pure, and secure. As I was studying this passage, there was a part that jumped out to me. God tells them, I'm gonna write my name on you. And as we were studying this, I had a picture pop right into my mind and it's gotta be just because my son's really into it right now. Um, but lately, Riley and I have been watching Toy Story together a lot. And like the OG one from the early 90s that I grew up on. And for the first time in my life, I was able to tell him like, I saw this when I was your age. <laughs> And I've hung out with my son watching it a lot. Well, if you know the movie, there's like a major plot point where the toys realize that their owner's name is on their foot. And they see the name of Andy and they realize like, I do have purpose even though I'm made of plastic and this whole thing. Um, and as we watched that as a family, Riley asked me to do something that I asked my parents to do when I was his age. And that was to put his name on the foot of one of his favorite toys. And I wanna show you a picture. And so Riley had us put the name on. And so there it is, Riley. And he doesn't treasure this that much. I had to go looking for it to find that picture if I'm being real honest. But in the story and for Riley in whatever fleeting moment that was his favorite toy, that name was ownership. 
What Jesus is saying to this church is that I am permanently putting my name on you so that you never forget that even though you might be rejected by everyone else, you have been accepted by God himself, the creator who loves you. And as Pastor Jamie says every week, he loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. In the book of Matthew chapter six and verse 10, Jesus prays a prayer and he prays this, your kingdom done, your will, your will come on earth as it is in heaven. As we close today, I want you to recognize that all of this stuff we have access to is not just access eternally beginning in heaven, it's access right now. As we close today, I wanna to tell you one more story and it's our pirate story for the morning. I, I wanna tell you about a pirate named Captain Kidd. As we were studying pirate history this month, which is really fun, we get to study the Bible and pirate history, we found something interesting. Throughout pop culture and throughout the ages, we have this picture of pirates burying their treasure and having a treasure map to go back and find it. What you may not realize is that only happened one time in history, and it was with Captain Kidd. Captain Kidd was known to have stolen and buried a lot of treasure. History would tell us that he claimed to have buried 40,000 British pounds, which in their money is absolutely ridiculous. Well, they would go on to try and find it. They would only find 10,000, but historians say he was probably lying and it was closer to 400,000 pounds that had been buried in an island somewhere off the coast. Well, Captain Kidd became very infamous and he was actually on trial for murder and piracy. And in the moments of his trial, he tried to use the buried treasure as a bargaining chip. He tried to say, hey, please let me go free. I promise I'll take you right to where my treasure is buried. And of course, being a pirate, they did not believe him one bit. And he ended up getting executed for his crimes. Now, why do I tell you the story of Captain Kidd? Often we look at heaven as buried treasure that we think sounds good, but we don't have access to now. You see, Captain Kidd could do nothing with a treasure that he couldn't access in the moment. And spiritually, if we don't lay hold of Jesus, there is a treasure we don't have access to. But all we have to do is accept Jesus into our heart, accept him as Lord in our life, and then instantly that treasure is not buried away in heaven for us to experience in eternity. Eternity can begin here and now. We have access to acceptance we have access to protection, and ultimately we have access to eternity, and eternity starts right now. If you could bow your heads and close your eyes all across this room. I wanna pray a prayer for you this morning, and the first group of people I wanna pray with today is those that don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe earlier this morning, you heard me talk about being a 10-year-old who needed to know they were accepted, and you know that feeling really never goes away the older we get. If you're here today and you're far from the Lord, I want you to know that no matter what you've done, He loves you and He accepts you and He wants relationship with you more than you could ever want to be with Him. So if you're here today and you wanna say yes to the Lord for the first time, or maybe it's the first time in a long time, don't wait. The treasure is there for you. You just gotta grab it. So if you're here and you wanna say yes to Jesus today, would you be bold and raise your hand when I count to three? One, two, three. All across this room, I want to say yes to Jesus today. Would you just raise your hand up high so I can see it? I want to pray with you today. Awesome. I see you this morning. I see you. 
you're watching online today and you want to raise your hand right where you are, just send us a message to let, let us know that you're praying. Well, family, would you pray with me today? And let's pray that everyone who's praying this for the first time knows that they're not praying it alone. Repeat after me. Say, dear Jesus, you are the son of God who died for me in my place. Forgive me and make me new. From this day forward, with your help, I'm all yours. In Jesus' name, amen. At Woodlake Church, our passion is to help you connect with God, find your sweet spot in ministry, and grow in your faith. Everyone is welcome at Woodlake. If you've never been to church before in your life, or if you're a lifelong Christian, Woodlake is a place where you can experience real and lasting spiritual growth. Music is upbeat. The messages are straight from God's Word. They're very practical. We also have great programs for infants through 12th grade. I mean, we have something for everyone. Come check us out this weekend. I promise you'll be glad you did.